So um, if you feel this week that you've been in some battles and you need some hope and you need some encouragement, you have come to the right chapter. This is an unbelievable chapter. Um, and I am so excited about this. I know I don't appear to be excited on the outside. I'm not the most Pentecostal person in this church, but I'm telling you, this is great. And uh, since I was here last time, um, I, I learned a couple of things. There are actually rules when you come up here. And one of the rules, as you know, there's a camera that records all the sermons, so you can go back and, and watch them. And, um, but I didn't know that the, one of the rules is that if you have to be able to touch this table or you're, there's nobody in the video. So if you get further away than this, I didn't know that. So today I thought <laughs> I'd do everybody a favor, right? <laughs> Cook never looked so good, right? Um, so uh, I think it has been mentioned before that there is... Uh, the preaching schedule is made weeks, months in advance. Um, and so we've been going through uh, the book of Deuteronomy at about uh, half a chapter a week pace. Um, this week, they handed me the entire third chapter. So I hope you brought your lunch. Um, or there's breakfast, right? So uh, let's start with that question. Let me ask you a question. Has anybody ever made you a promise and didn't keep it? Have you ever made a promise to somebody and couldn't keep it? Maybe you wanted to, but for some reason you just couldn't. Well, in our society today, it is promises, 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 right? Uh, Governments make promises. Advertisers make promises that usually are not true. Politicians make and break promises. And wives, even husbands, make promises that break them sometimes. Um, but do you know anybody that's never broken a promise? You do, huh? Somebody that always keeps their promise? I got a suggestion. Moses in Numbers 23 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Rhetorical question by Moses. Let's look at Hebrews Chapter 6. So here's a promise that God made to Abraham. Verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely multiply and bless you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath has been Given as a confirmation, it is an end of every dispute. And some, in the same way, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope to set before us, to take hold of the hope that's set before us. This is the scene in Deuteronomy chapter 3. It's God's people taking hold of God's promises. So let's go to Deuteronomy and look at the promise God has made to his people. 
This is the uh, first chapter of Deuteronomy, verse 8. See, I have placed the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord your God swore to give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, to Jacob, to them and all their descendants. So this command should not have shocked them because God has been promising this for centuries. And if we turned back a few hundred years from Deuteronomy 3, we'll come to Genesis chapters 12 and then chapter 13. Chapter 12, verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then in Genesis 13, he says, For all the land which you see, I will give to you and your descendants forever. I think somebody should send this verse to the United Nations. So that's the promise, that's the covenant. Now, this promise that God gave Abraham is a foundation that you can understand all of redemptive history. It's all bound up in this covenant. In the first chapter of Luke's gospel, he's telling the Christmas story. Luke chapter 1. Luke is telling us the story about the birth of Christ. And Zechariah, in his song of praise here, is linking the birth of Christ to a very specific covenant given in the Old Testament. Let's look at the promise to Abraham. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy towards our father and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So it says there in verse 72, to remember God's holy covenant, an oath which he swore to Abraham. This covenant was about mercy. It was a covenant to show mercy. It's a, I, the idea is God is compassionate, and he was merciful to undeserving people. And he made a promise. So he made the promise first to Abraham, and then to Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Then he extended that promise to the nation of Israel, and then from Israel to the whole world. So he announced the terms of this promise in Genesis chapter 12, but the covenant was actually made in Genesis 15. So I think this is important. It's foundational here. I want us to um, look at this just to take a moment so we understand what's going to be unfolding here in Deuteronomy. So um, Genesis 15. Now you've heard the term to cut a deal. That's exactly what's going on here, literally. Genesis 15. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars. And if you're able to count them, and he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land and to possess it. He said, O Lord, how may I know that I will possess it? So in verses 9 through 11, 
Some animals were sacrificed. And then in verse 12, the sun's going down. It says, and a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in the land. They will be slaves and oppressed for 400 years, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they'll come out with many possessions. So here he's speaking of Egypt. Verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your father in peace and you will be buried at a good old age. That was 120 years. Old. So then in the fourth generation, they will return here. The iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. They had full over 400 years, these nations did, to repent. And it came about when the sun had set, and it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed through these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants... I have given this land from the river Egypt to the Euphrates. And then verses 19 through 21, this land is now occupied by all these ites and giants. So, um, yeah, I can mispronounce those names as well as anybody, right? So, during the time of Abram, this is the way people ratified or legalized uh, covenants. So both parties would walk between these animals reading the terms of the agreement this was very serious. This is a blood sacrifice that showed the um, sealing of the covenant in a very graphic way. So notice verse 12. God passes through the sacrifice alone. This is unilateral. This is unconditional. This is one-sided. What was Abraham's involvement? Zero. He was out cold. This is a promise God made with himself. Now look at verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And by the way, this is the first mention in the Bible of the primary condition for salvation. So God never saves by any other way except grace. It's because you believe God, you accept Christ as your Savior, you believe that God has provided salvation for you. So there's the promise. And that's what we're seeing unfolding here in chapter 3 of Deuteronomy. It's the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise. It's their land. They're going to possess it now. And if you remember from uh, last week, we saw uh, Israel defeating Sihon. Uh, they're on the east side of the Jordan right now, and they'll be moving north. And so Moses is now recounting their history. So as Moses speaks to the people, um, they simply need to remember their own history to know that God is going to continue saving them. And um, they know their future, and they can be confident. So simply by looking back and see how God has sustained them, they can have this encouragement and hope. And so can we. So our outline for chapter 3, we'll read each section and then go back and, and comment. So first the defeat, verse 1, verse 1 of chapter 3. Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan and Og, king of Bashan, with all his people came out to meet us in battle at Edrei. 
But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all your people into his land, into your hand. And you shall do to him just as you did to King Sihon of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon. So the Lord our God delivered Og also, king of Bashan, with all his people into our hand. And we smote them until no survivor was left. We captured all his cities at that time. There was not a city which we did not take from them. Sixty cities, all the region of Argob, the king of Og and Bashan. This area was about um, 3,000 square miles. So all these cities were fortified with high walls, gates, bars, besides great many unwalled towns. We utterly destroyed them as we did to King Sihon of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. Uh, Last week, Pastor Drew explained that very well. Verse 7, But all the animals and the spoil of the cities we took as booty. Thus we took the land at that time from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, from the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon. And then the Sidonians call it one thing, and the Amorites call it another thing. Verse 10, all the cities of the plateau and all Gilead and all Bashan as far as Selkah and Edre, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. Verse 11, for only Og of king of Bashan was left the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. It is now in Rabbah of the sons of Ammon. Its length was nine cubits and its width four cubits by ordinary cubits. So having heard what had happened to King Sihon, um, the king of Bashan, Og, now goes out to do battle with Israel. Um, If you notice verse 2, this is a key verse. Not only in this chapter, this might be the key verse of the whole book. Verse 2, but the Lord said to me, do not fear him. Why? For I have delivered him and all his people into your hand. He says, I have. I have is past tense. God is promising them a victory before they even go in to do battle. The deal is done. Take out your sword, because I'm assuring you the victory. Which means they didn't fight for victory. They fought from the position of victory. And as Christians, that's where we fight. As you know, we have a very powerful enemy, don't we? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness, says Ephesians chapter 6. But in battles that you face, they're not fleshly battles, they are spiritual battles. The temptations that challenge us sometimes, we think we're going to make, wonder if we're going to even make it at all. But we're not fighting for victory. The victory has already been given. We are fighting from the position of victory. That's the lesson here. Colossians 2 says, speaking of Christ, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through the cross. It is over. You're saying, well, the devil doesn't act like it. He doesn't know it, and that's right. And he's not going to give you 
the land that's rightly yours. He's going to try to stop you any way he can. But we are to take the territory that is rightfully ours. So fear, intimidation, giants, whatever, we fight from victory. Verse 4. We captured all the cities at that time, and there was not a city which we did not take from them. Sixty cities, all the region of Argob, the king of Bashan. So when we have one victory, it encourages us for the next victory. So when it was announced uh, that we were going to be going through the book of Deuteronomy, I heard a few, not many, but I heard a few grumblings and complaints. Um, We're going to take all those months to go through the law? I mean, I'm a New Testament Christian. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. In fact, I'm not even Jewish. So let me sum it up in one verse. Romans 15.4. And by the way, I have this verse uh, plastered on my wall right next to my computer. Um, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So there are very important life lessons for us here in this book of Deuteronomy. And we must recall God's acts in history and also in our own personal lives so that we will be encouraged to know that God will see us through our present situations. The victory was against all odds. They were unbeatable odds, but that's been the history of the nation of Israel. Today, there's over three million enemies surrounding them, and they would like to see nothing other than their destruction, and yet they still survive by the hand of God. So the question for this morning is, what are the insurmountable odds that you are facing? What's the big giant in your life that's, that's pressuring you. Can we today grab a hold of this promise, this lesson here, and say if it can happen for them, then God can do that for me? Can I, take, can I take the lead? Can I grab a hold of what God's promised me? I love what Martin Luther used to say. He said, with God, one is a majority. All you need is God. It's God and you against everyone else. First John tells, calls us believers overcomers. He says, whatever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is a victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. But our spoils are not land, high-walled cities, or livestock. The New Testament, New Testament tells us what the spoils of an overcomer are. This is what we have overcome. Revelation says Satan. 1 Corinthians says death. 1 John says the world. We have overcome Satan, death, and the world. These are the enemies that believers have victory over. Verse 5, he points out that these cities were high-walled, gated, and barred. Og's armies, they were highly trained, fortified, um, powerful armies. Israel were Bedouins living in tents. They were no match for the armies of Bashan. And if you remember um, the report from the spies that struck fear and terror in the hearts 
of the first generation, it was that they had high-walled cities and giants. So Moses is now here pointing out, look, it's nothing with God. If God can be for us, who can be against us? Nobody. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not freely give us all things? Says Romans 8. And look at the contrast between these soldiers and the word of, of their God to the unbelieving back in um, chapter 1, verse 28. Where can, where can we go up? Our brethren have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are bigger and taller than we are. The cities are larger and fortified to heaven. And besides, we saw the sons of the Anakim there, talking about giants. The parents' generation had the opposite of faith. That's why they couldn't go in. What's the opposite of faith? Fear. They, came, they became the world's longest funeral march because they lacked faith. They wandered in, in the wilderness until they died because they didn't believe God. Now, if you do the math with the two million people that came out of Egypt, that is some... 80 funerals a day for 40 years. What a visual that is for a lesson of unbelief. Every day. So let's remind ourselves what faith is. If I wanted a biblical definition of faith, what chapter in the Bible would I turn to? Hebrews 11? Right. Let's look at verse 1. Hebrews 11, verse 1 says, Faith is the assurance, excuse me, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So that's being assured about something that hasn't happened. And then it is the conviction of things not seen. So it's to be sure about what hasn't happened and it's to be convinced about what you haven't seen. Now, why in the world would I be sure about something that hasn't happened and convinced about what I can't see. Only one reason. And that's because God said it was so. Very simply, faith, biblical faith, is believing that what God said simply because he said it. And because he said it, you believe it, and you bet your life on it. And that's what's going on here. They're believing the promises of God, his word, and they're acting on it. That's called obedience. In verse 11, For only King Og of Bashan was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bedstead was an iron bed, and its length was nine cubits width by four cubits. So basically that translates to six feet wide and 13 and a half feet long. He was a big dude. I think this is the first record of a king-sized bed. So. Uh. Let's go. The, the distribution of the land, verses 12 through 22. So we took possession of this land at that time. From Ar, which is by the valley of Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead, and its cities I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites. The rest of Gilgad and all of Bashan, which was the kingdom of Og, I gave to half the tribe of Manasseh, all the region of Argob, concerning all Bashan is called the land of the Rephaim, or giants, depending on your translation. In verses 14 and 15, he's dividing the property uh, 
among the especially outstanding warriors in verses 16 and 17 to Reuben and Gad he gave from basically the Sea of Galilee all the way down to the Dead, the dead Sea. So uh, Israel had seen the miraculous victories over Sihon and Og, but that would only be a sneak preview of coming attractions, just a hint how God would be proved to be faithful. Look at what God's doing now, and we haven't even entered in to the land. So on the right-hand side of that map, the top purple, that is the area we're talking about. And then um, that's the half a tribe of Manasseh. And the green, I can't read that from here, but I think that's Gad. And then So those three on the right-hand side, the orange, green, and, pur- and purple. In verse 18, Then I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess it. All your valiant men shall cross over before your brothers, the sons of Israel, but your wives and your little ones and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in your cities which I have given you until the Lord gives you rest to your fellow countrymen as to you, and they also possess the land which the Lord your God will give them beyond Jordan. Then you may return every man to his possession which I gave you. So back in Numbers 32, the two and a half tribes, they liked the looks of this land very much. It was fertile, beautiful, grassy, grazing land. They said, we really don't want to cross over. And he says, okay, you guys can stay here, but you've got to assist Joshua in the conquering of the land. You can come back after the conquest and live here. That was a seven-year conquest, by the way. You can stay here. You don't have to go with us if you don't want to, but you do have to do your military obligation. You don't have to go. How true that is. God will never make you go. He'll never make me go any further than I want to. Spiritually, God will take us as far as we want to go. Our walk with the Lord, our understanding of him, our being used by him, God will take us as far as we want to go. If I say, I don't want to go any further, I don't want to go any deeper, I don't want to do more, I don't want to be more, I don't want to accomplish anything more for God's kingdom, God will not force us. The Lord is saying here, okay, if you want to stay on this side, fine. You don't have to go into the heart of the promised land. But your men of war have got to help out. So we know in our lives there's things that we can't do or haven't done, we can't accomplish, but we can support those that are on the front lines in the battles, right? We pray for those that are in ministry. We give financially to missionaries. We do our part to help others be victorious. And by the way, sad to say, these two and a half tribes did not fare well in later years. It was a great place for cattle, green and lush, but they didn't go all the way into the land as God had called them to. They stayed on the outside They got attacked constantly, and they were the first to get carried away in the captivity. This place seemed to be better and easier, but they really had a rough time of it. And many of us are missing out on blessings and victory because we're not doing what God has told us to do and going where God has told us to do, the place where God has told us to be. We are to seek first the kingdom of God. Verse 21, I commanded Joshua at that time, saying, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord God has done to these two kings, so the Lord shall do the same to all the kingdoms which you are about to cross. 
So this would be quite an encouragement to Joshua and Caleb, survivors of that long 40-year death march. So Joshua would, would take over from Moses. And in the beginning of the book of Joshua, God would tell, tell him, Be strong and courageous, for ye shall give this people possession of the land, which I swore to your fathers to give them. So he's saying, don't be afraid, don't stop now, don't quit. You mustn't fear them. Why? Verse 22. Do not fear them, for the Lord your God himself is the one fighting for you. So who's doing the fighting? Last night, Pastor Drew said, well, wait, that's a whole sermon for me, just that one verse. And this chapter, there's probably 20 sermons in there. So remember, we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from the position of victory. And our last section, verses 23 through 29. Now, this last section is painful to read. This great leader, Moses, is denied his heart's desire to enter into the promised land. And he's asked to prepare Joshua to do this job. Verse 23, I also pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Let me, I pray, cross over and see the fair land that is beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon, But the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough. Speak to me no more of this matter. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes to the west, north, south, and east and see it with your eyes. For you shall not cross over the Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him for he shall cross at the head of the people and he will give them as an inheritance of the land which you will see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. So here we see the prayer of Moses. Moses is pouring out his innermost desires to the Lord. That's a privilege that you and I also have. Um, But this conversation gives us insight to the intimate relationship that Moses had with the Lord. I'm jealous of this. I mean, it was unbelievable the conversations that Moses and God had. But since God let Moses take part in the conquering of the kings, this seemed like a really good time to ask God, right? Um, you know, maybe God's changed his mind. So in verse 24 here, he really starts buttering him up. He's laying it on thick here. Even though Moses is 120 years old, he was ready to go. He's saying, Lord, come on. I see you beginning to wipe out the enemies. This is so exciting, I just love to see what you've promised. Lord, can I go? But God says no. Now this seems extremely severe, right? I mean, this is God's servant, Moses. Why is he so harsh with Moses? I mean, Moses didn't ask for this job. Forty years he's in the wilderness with these rebellious, grumbling, stiff-necked people. Uh, the first time they, so what he's referring to is the first time they needed water back in Exodus 17, God told Moses, strike the rock and water will come out. 
Now, the second time in the wilderness, this is referring back to Numbers 20, when they need water. They said, give us water to drink, we're perishing. So Moses went before the Lord, and he said, God told Moses not to strike the rock. He said to hit the rock. Speak to the rock, God says. But instead, Moses shouted, listen, you rebels, we must... Must we bring water out of this rock? Must I strike this rock again and give you water? And he took the rock, rock he took his rod and struck the rock, and water came out. Mo, uh, Moses, when's the last time you made water come out? Who's taking the credit here? This is not good. And God said, Moses, come here, son. You blew it. This is not good. Moses, you did not properly represent me before the people. Now Moses was God's representative. And God wasn't angry with them, but Moses was. And Moses represented God as being angry, and he wasn't. You didn't represent me properly, Moses, and that is a serious error. And when uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul lists qualifications for leaders in the uh, pastoral epistles, he says that a leader must be self-controlled and must not be quick-tempered. See, leaders are to be examples. And I know many of you in this church are leading different ministries and leading different things. Leaders are to be examples, and therefore the sins are much more serious, and they are judged with much, much more severity. Than others, and we see that in James, verse one of chapter three. So God, wanting to impress on the minds of the people the importance of obedience, and to be proper representatives of Him. See, you and I run around calling ourselves Christians. That means we are representatives for God in the world today. And Jesus said, "You are my witnesses." So the question is. Are we representing God properly? What concepts are people getting of God from us? Is, do they really know that God is love from us? Do they really know that God cares about us? Or do they think God's angry? So how do I represent God? God is seeking here the importance that we represent him faithfully, and truthfully before the world. Moses failed. He represented God as being angry. And, and God said, Moses, because you failed to represent me properly before the people, you cannot go into the land. Enough, speak no more of this matter. Now, you've heard it said that God answers prayers three different ways. He says, sometimes yes, that's one we like, Sometimes he says no, and then sometimes wait, right? So in this case, where Moses' request was not granted, in order that God might teach the lesson of obedience and the importance of representing him properly. And to the century, in the centuries to come, the, the Jewish mothers would tell the story of Moses, 
and how God raised up a man and protected him as a baby. And he lived in the, in the courts of the princes. And he used Moses to deliver the nation of Israel, brought him across the desert, all the miracles that were done. But Moses was not allowed to go in. The story does not end happily because he failed to properly represent God. And this lesson became deeply embedded on the minds of, of Israel. So although Moses couldn't accompany the children of Israel into the promised land, the Lord told Moses to go up on top of the mountain where he would give him a supernatural view of the entire land. So God in his grace did let him see the land. Since Moses could not lead people across Jordan, God reminded him of his responsibility to prepare and encourage Joshua, the next leader. And that's something we all need to do, whatever ministry we're involved in. We need to raise up the next generation. We are called to make disciples. We are called to multiply the gospel. So our personal agenda is non-important compared to the agenda of the kingdom. So our final question. Did God answer Moses' prayer? No, yes, or wait? Check this out. I love this. Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 30. Now Jesus is on the Mount of the Transfiguration with his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And Jesus pulls back his humanity for a moment, and the whole place is filled with glory, blinding glory. And who shows up in the promised land in Jerusalem? Elijah and who? Moses. He just had to wait 1,500 years. I like our God. It amazes me the way he has ways of making things happen that we don't expect. And we don't deserve, and sometimes things don't work out the way we think they should. But Rock Church family, don't forget God is on the throne. God is sovereign. You have some giants in your life. Maybe you're in a battle. Remember that God is using the situations that you're going through to accomplish his will. Happy is the man and, or woman who remembers and reflects on the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. He knows what he's doing. He's our father who proved that he loves us passionately by sending his son to die in our place on that cross at Calvary. He's in control. He's doing what's best for you. He won't force you to go any further than you want to, but he'll take you as far as you want to go, even across to the Jordan and to all his promises. So let's be a people of faith and trust and believing. Um, as the worship team comes up, remind you, if you have any need for prayer after the, our last song, There'll be some people who would love to pray for you for any of your needs. Why don't we stand and pray together?
Heavenly Father, we thank you that in you, Lord, we have victory. Lord, you have defeated all our enemies, Lord. I just pray this week, Lord, we would walk in faith, believing you, Lord, and following you. Lord, help us to go as far as you want us to go, Lord. Help us to go in and lay hold of all the promises that you have given us, Father. I just pray that each and every person here, Lord, that you would minister to them, encourage them, and give them hope. We thank you now in the name of Jesus. Amen.